Chapter Eleven of Where the Path Breaks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Where the Path Breaks by Captain Charles de Crespigny. Chapter Eleven. If he would stand by her as her friend, Denon could not wait to write. He cabled recklessly. You have done no wrong. Take all the comfort you need. What you suffer is not punishment. It is martyrdom. God help her, he prayed, and let me help her, too, my Barbara. He thought of the girl yearningly, as of a tortured child with the heart of a woman. His pain was peace compared to hers, and it was he, the blind man he called clear-seeing, who had thrown her to the wolves. If he had not been too blind to see her love, he would have shown his for her as he had not dared to show it that day in the old garden. Their marriage would have been a real marriage, binding Barbara so indissolubly to him that not to save a life could she have broken the bond. By this time they would have been together in their home and not his memory, but himself would follow her through the rooms and by the dreamy lake at Gorston Old Hall. Yet even so, could he ever have known the girl from tip to tip of her soul's wings, as he saw himself destined to know her now, with six thousand miles of sea and land, and one man's death and another man's life between them? Would he have learned from her lips and eyes the delicate truth of an exquisite worship, as he had learned it today from her written tribute to a dead soldier? My God! She's more mine than she could ever have been if I hadn't died for her, he heard himself think aloud. After all, life hadn't been laughing behind his back while he wrote the book for Barbara. Though fate snatched her away from him with one hand, with the other it gave her back, irrevocably and forever. It seemed to Denon that, though nothing could bring them together in body, nothing could ever separate them in spirit. When he wrote that same day, he assured her again, as he had assured her in his cable, that she had a right to every one of the words of comfort he had sent, "'And you have a right to lean on that unseen wall of love I told you about,' he repeated. "'It is close to you, and meant to lean on. "'There can be no disloyalty to anyone in resting against it. "'The love that exists for you on the other side of the great sea "'is too vast to be selfish. "'It asks nothing from you that you ought not to give. "'It only begs you to be happy.' for there's a kind of happiness without which we fall out of tune with the universe. Don't say you can have no happiness of any kind. Don't think it or that it would be wrong or light-minded to be happy if you could. You have seen life draped in black, but black is a concentration of all colors. No opal has such lights as a black opal. The great adventure of life is learning the terror and the beauty and the splendor of it all, as one and inseparable. I have to confess that I am no guide for you or any other. I am just groping my way up 
out of my own dark places. But I believe that great secrets reveal themselves in flashes, just as, in some mysterious inspired moments, a sunrise or a sunset tells you the truth of a thing you've been groping for years to find out. This obligation to your own soul, and heaven knows how many others, the obligation of happiness, is one secret which has been opened for me by a magic key. That key is my strong wish to be of use to you. It helps me to feel that I may help you. Perhaps you'll care to know that? And you can help me, and yourself, and the man who has passed on, by trying to gain the kind of happiness I speak of. It's the kind that makes you one with the sunlight, a true note in the great music, ringing in tune with the universe. I wonder if you happen to remember about the music which the man in my book, the man who was passing, heard over the battlefield, the music of life for which the music of war and death was only the bass, the necessary undertone? I caught just a few snatches of that life music, but once heard, it goes on echoing in the ears, teaching you the harmony of all things, if you listen deeply enough. Those young soldiers I tried to write about, who had thrown off their bodies and even their enmities, with the rags and dirt and blood they left on the battlefield, they were listening to the great music, and hearing in it, the call to some special mission which only they were fitted to fulfill, going to it in the summer of their youth, before they had grown tired of anything. I do believe that was more than a dream of mine, that this torrent of splendid youth, this vast crowd of ardent souls suddenly rushed from one plane to another, has some wonderful work to do, which can be done only by souls who go out with the wine of courage on their lips. But we others, we have our mission too. We can't perform it if we make false notes in the music for the passing souls to hear. And we shall make false notes if we let our high vibrations drop down weakly to depression's minor tones. Perhaps you'll turn away from this idea of mine but it's one that interests me, as you know, because you've honored my little book by caring for it. In the dreams I had of things on the other side of sight and hearing, I thought that I saw the real meaning of the war, the hidden cause of this landslide of civilization. I saw a whole nation scintillating with dull red vibrations of fear, fear of attack by other nations, fear of letting neighbors grow stronger than they. Then I saw the dull red glowing brighter with vibrations of anger, a furious desire to grow strong at the expense of others, and to kill and conquer at any cost. Beautiful blue vibrations of intellect and clear green vibrations of hope and successful perseverance were lost swallowed up by the all-pervading blood-red. I saw the heavy crimson flood spreading into and lowering the golden vibrations of other great peoples who had not yet fallen, and in the strange dream of colors pulsing through the ether of earth and heaven, I realized the immensity of the fight, 
how it reached far beyond the forces we know, being in truth a battle between the light of cosmic day and the darkness of cosmic night. I saw that the danger was defeat of the golden vibrations by the red which would lower the life-force of the whole world. But something told me, some snatch of the great music which interprets secrets, that progress is an integral, unalterable part of evolution, that evil, which is only negative good, can never conquer, and that the gold vibrations must win in the end. In the dream, that knowledge gave me rest. It seemed a pronouncement from the tribunal of the power which causes all worlds and all beings to take form and exist by vibrations. That's a long homily on my dreams and the theories I'm clumsily founding on them. But I am trying hard myself to vibrate and resound in tune, because each vibration and each note count quite as much as individual soldiers count in war. In this time of earth stress, and after, when civilization is remaking itself in men's minds, with the loyal spirit of the time, we must all think gold and blue, the gold of the sun by which our bodies live, blue of the sky when inspirations come. You'll believe me a mystic, whatever that misused word may mean, but I'm only trying to see the reality behind the thing upon which I've harped to you already. We are needing to know the reality as we never needed such knowledge before. Be happy, then, in the way that unites you with everything in heaven and on earth, all the sweet, kind children of nature close around you, so that you may learn the different languages of flowers from their perfumes, and what the trees say in the wind. You can't feel alone in the world if the trees talk to you, and they will if you open your heart to them. You will get to know the oak language, the pine, the elm, the beech languages, and next you will learn how they and the sea and the rivers and brooks and everything else that makes up the music of nature give out the same message in a thousand different ways. Be happy. To be happy with your soul, no matter what has hurt your body and tried to spoil your life, is to be strong. Go into your garden and walk by the lake you tell me of, and don't be afraid to call the memory you love to walk with you there or anywhere. The one you have loved understands all, and so there could never be even a question of forgiveness. Denon longed to add to his letter the request that she should write often, but he would not ask that of Barbara. He must be ready to give all that she wanted and beg for nothing in return. Perhaps if she found any small comfort in what he had written this time, she would be satisfied, and feel that nothing more was left to be said on either side. This possibility he tried to keep before his mind, and to think of even as a probability, in order to soften the blow of disappointment if he never heard again. But in his heart he knew that she would write, it seemed to him, when he walked in the little garden of the Mirador, 
or stretched his long body on the warm grass under a big olive tree he loved, that he could hear her thoughts in the garden of Gorston Old Hall. With his ear close to the earth, the message Barbara would send by and by seemed to come to him before it had left her mind and taken form on paper. She answered his cable without waiting for the letter that followed. "'Thank you a thousand times,' she said. "'I have always something new to thank you for. "'What should I have done if your book hadn't come to me "'and given me you for my friend? "'For a little while I almost stopped believing in God, "'for life looked so cruel, "'not only to me but to everyone, "'or nearly everyone, I know, since the war began.' Far and wide as I looked, I could find no mercy, no pity. How ungrateful I was, when all the time God was putting it into your mind to write that book, and sending your friendship to me when I needed it as one needs air to breathe. Do you know you are teaching me to think? I feel now as if I had never really thought before. I just dreamed or brooded. If he had lived, I should have learned from him. That is, I should if our souls hadn't gone on forever being shy of one another. When I had him with me, I was too busy loving him and being afraid that he wouldn't love me to think about anything outside, though his mind had given my mind a great lift even then. And another thing I want to tell you. Your way of thinking reminds me of him. I believe you must be a little like him, mentally, I mean. Believing this will make me trust and turn to you, as one who knows the things I long to know. You have his name, too, John. And I am going to sign my name always after this, not a mere impersonal initial. I am yours, oh so gratefully, Barbara Denon. P.S. Strange, I didn't notice at first where your cable was dated. I suppose, like the help you send me, it seemed just to come out of space. But reading the message again, I broke open the envelope I had already sealed to tell you what a throb of the heart I had in seeing Santa Barbara. Can it be that you live in Santa Barbara? I was christened after that dear old place because I was born there, or very near. It's good, it's wonderful to have your words come to me from home. It was a direct question which she asked. Did he live at Santa Barbara? But Denon thought best not to answer it. She would forget, maybe, or would suppose that he had been staying for a short time in California. Each of his letters to her before, though posted not far from the Mirador itself, had been enclosed in an envelope to Eversedge Sibley. In all but one case, other letters to correspondents brought the author by his book had been sent off in the wrapper with Barbara's. Denon had taken pains to settle the difficulty of writing to Gorston Old Hall in this way, in order that neither the name of the woman nor the name of the place should be remarked by Sibley. 
he kept this rule with the letter which followed Barbara's question, but her next broke the plan in pieces. It crossed one from him and was written after receiving his letter about the garden. Dear friend, she named him, before I say anything else, and I feel that there are a thousand things, each pressing forward to be said first, I must tell you what I have found out. I've learned that you are living in the house my father built for me. Of course, that won't be important to you. Why should it be so? I have to remind myself over and over that I am surely just one of many women who have written to you after reading your book, one of many women you are kind to, out of the goodness of your heart, and the knowledge that's in it. Can knowledge be in a heart? Yes, yours is there, I think, even more than in your brain. I am nothing to you except a poor drowning creature to whom you have held out a firm hand. But the drowning creature feels that your living in a place she knew and loves gives her a kind of personal right in you. I read this very morning in a London paper an extract from a New York one, an article about John Sanborn. Perhaps you never even knew it was written. I'm sure you gave no permission to have it done. I think you would not like the way the man wrote about you. But I felt, in reading, that he tried hard to bring his work up to a high level and make it worthy of the subject. If you realized the good it has done me to know that you cared enough for my dear little Mirador to want it for your own, and to restore it from ruin, why, you could not be so very angry with the newspaper man. That time in California, when I was a little girl, seemed a hundred years ago, or even in another state of existence, till I read the description of you in your garden, once my garden. Then that part of my life came back as if it were yesterday. I can see the big olive tree, which had been let grown as it liked, with all sorts of flowing, dancing gestures of its branches and twisting of its trunk, the way olives grow in Italy and the south of France. I used to call it my silver fountain, and under it there was always a look of moonlight, even in the brightest noon. I do hope nothing has happened to the tree. Say kind things to the silver fountain from its little friend Barbara, Write me about it, and tell me, please, if it means anything fairy-like to you as it did to me. But I know it must, because of what you say about your garden. How little I thought when the letter came four days ago that my long-ago garden and your garden of now were one and the same. That letter was more than a letter. It was a saving force because it was so much to me, and I wanted to think it all over and over. I couldn't have dared to answer it once in any case. But it came on an anniversary, August 18th, the day of his passing. I can't say or write the word death since I have begun to learn from you. It was always a dreadful word, like a bludgeon, but now it's impossible. 
For me it has gone out of the language. As you walk in your little California garden of the Mirador, will it please you at all to know that you have given me back the joy of the English garden, the beautiful garden and the lake, and the sweet, old, history-haunted house which he left to be mine? Because you, who know so much, say that he understands and doesn't even need to forgive me, I take your word. I am not afraid to walk with his memory now. I can speak to it as I shouldn't have had the courage to with him when he was here in the flesh. And because of your letter, August 18th was not a terrible day. It was more like the wedding day of two spirits than the anniversary of a great grief, and one of the spirits, mine, just released from prison. Not that it can stay out of prison forever. It's too weak yet to feel its freedom for long at a time. I've had horrible hours ever since that day. I shall have them often, I know, for the thing I have done has made daily life a torture. But at worst I can steal away by myself sometimes to read your letters over. They and my new thoughts will be for me the tonic of courage. And so I can go on from day to day, not looking too far ahead into the dark. If I haven't trespassed upon your time and imposed upon your great kindness too much already, will you write me little things about the Mirador and your life there? Will you, if you take photographs, send a snapshot of the wee house as it is now, and perhaps the silver fountain? To your grateful friend, Barbara Denon. P.S. You will think I am very old-fashioned and early Victorian about my postscripts, and I suppose I am, though I don't remember tacking many onto other letters, only those to you. This one is just a thought put into my head by some of the last things you said. It is about the war, and it came to me in the garden on August 18th. In a world war like this, with all its anguish, can it be meant for the nations, each one that suffers and strives, to develop by and by a new individuality, a great, unselfish, selfless self? Can it be that the power behind the world throws this one now into the furnace, because development must come for progress's sake? When the earth was first created, every least thing that lived fought for itself, and there was no holding together in a large way anywhere. When civilizations came, they brought no real improvement, for politics and greed divided nations against themselves as well as against each other. Is the true excuse for creation unity, with all the experience of ages to give it value? If it is so, and if each nation can attain to unity through sacrifice and heroism, won't the next thing to follow be the unity of the whole world? Can this be coming to pass, slowly yet surely, not only with our grain of sand, but with all the worlds, while the power who created watches through the cosmic days you spoke of? 
It would make one's own tears of sorrow seem small if one could believe this. And yet, if we did not grudge the tears, they might count as pearls poured into a golden cup to brim it full of jewels worthy of God's acceptance. Perhaps this isn't much of a thought, but such as it is, there has been light in it for me on dark days, and as I owe it to you, I felt I should like to tell you about it. It is going to make me realize more than I could before the brotherhood of all men in wartime, even the ones we call the enemy. Why, I used to be stupid and unseeing as a mole. I hardly thought about common people, pasty-faced waiters and weedy undergardeners and grocers' boys, as men at all. Now, out of every town and village, they are marching with their faces turned to the front, brave and smiling. They are as glorious soldiers as any, and I pray for them as I would pray for my own brothers. Is that a step for me towards the great unity? I wonder and hope. You see, I begin to warm myself at the fire your friendship has kindled. Each letter you write will be a fresh log piled on to feed the flame. End of chapter 11 Recording by Roger Moline